Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Chris Dill, and I'll be the presiding judge today. To my right is Judge Allegra Collins, and to my left is Judge Toby Hampson. We have our clerk, Gene Soar, here, and we have Richard Rimlar serving as our marshal. We have one case on the calendar. It's Wilson County Board of Education versus the Retirement System Division of the Department of State Treasurer. And so if we're ready to hear from that appellant, so proceed with your argument. Let me know if um, you want to reserve any time for, for rebuttal. And yes, Your Honor, I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. May it please the court, my name is Olga Visotskaya de Brito, and I am honored to represent the Retirement System Division, defendants and legislative defendants on this appeal. The Superior Court erred in four different and distinct ways when it reversed the Office of Administrative Hearings summary judgment in favor of the retirement system on a petition for judicial review. First, legislative defendants Berger and Moore were not, subje were not subject uh, to the court's jurisdiction, were not parties to this administrative claim, and the Superior Court erred by failing to dismiss them. Second, the Superior Court also erred when it failed to recognize the limits of its authority on a petition for judicial review. That authority does not extend to review of the constitutionality of state laws. The, the court should have dismissed that type of challenge. Third, the Superior Court also made a mistake when it, uh, even if it had jurisdiction to consider as applied challenges to state laws, it made the mistake of not considering what was truly in essence in board's claims uh, in this case. And those claims extended beyond the contours of just as applied challenges. And so those types of judgments belong to the three judge panel. And finally, as applied to this retirement, the Cap Factor Act does not violate the contract clause of the United States Constitution, does not unconstitutionally uh, interfere with any prohibitions against retroactivity, and also doesn't um, infringe in any way children's right to a sound basic. So let me address your, se your second argument is you don't think the Superior Court judge should have even heard it because it wasn't argued before or wasn't raised at the, at the, at the, at the administrative level. Is that, is that as, your as applied constitutional challenge was not argued before the Office of Administrative Hearing, and correctly so, because Office of Let's say they passed a law saying that only men got the pension or whatever. So, so my wife's a state employee, and she, she's an agreed party, and she goes there and argues it. I don't think the, the, the APA has the, any, any, the administrative body has the authority to declare anything unconstitutional. So how does, she, how does she address that? Can she raise it for the first time when it's actually before a trial court judge? The correct way to address that challenge would be for your wife to appear before the administrative uh, court and challenge any type of procedural or misapplication type of abnormalities that may have occurred at that level and exhaust her administrative remedies. But then once her administrative remedies would have been uh, exhausted, through the Office of Administrative Hearings and Petition for Judicial Review, she should have filed a declaratory judgment action, challenging just the constitutionality of that particular statute. So is it, is it your contention that once you get out of the Office of Administrative Hearings and you're in the Superior Court for Judicial Review, that all the way through 
that appellate review, let's say it goes to the Superior Court, say it comes here, say it comes over to the Supreme Court, is that a continuation of administrative? I, I is it is administrative up through our general courts of justice or is it a civil action so at that point? So this court is different and appellate courts are different from a superior court when the superior court sits in its appellate posture. Of course, I would uh, concede that the, this court has supervisory jurisdiction. It has jurisdiction to suspend the rules under rule two of the appellate procedure. It has a much wider jurisdiction on appeal and because of that, as we know in uh, Redmond case, for example, this court, upon certification of a constitutional question, was able to consider a constitutional, constitutionality of a statute issue. The superior court, when it sits on a PJR jurisdiction, does not have that authority. We know it uh, from two different statutes under Article 150B-51, and also we know that from 150B-46. 140B-46, for example, states that a party that is aggrieved can pursue an administrative remedy um, at the judicial level, but only if other statutes don't provide that party a relief, and that's a declaratory judgment relief that we would, uh, we would claim applies here. And we also know that uh, PJR court does not have a jurisdiction to review challenges to the constitutionality of state statutes is because 150B-51B uh, lists six specific grounds that the PJR court could consider when it decides to reverse the, superior, uh, the OAH's decision. And those grounds, not a single one of them states on the basis of the statutes being unconstitutional. There is a provision that says that agency decision being in violation of constitutional provisions could be considered on a PJR review, but that's different than constitutionality of a state law. And the General Assembly, when it determines that uh, it wants a court to be able to review uh, constitutional challenges to state statutes, knows which words to use. There are examples in our statutory scheme, including uh, one of the statutes that we talk about here, 1-267.1. There is clear language, there is no misinterpretation there that the General Assembly considered three-judge panel as an appropriate tribunal for review of facial constitutional challenges, for example. But the wording is there that it's facial constitutional challenges to state statutes. In our tax scheme, for example, there is also a statute uh, that allows uh, business court, after the case went through OAH proceedings, it allows business court to review constitutionality of state statutes. But uh, that statute specifically in the title says, civil action to review constitutionality of state statutes. This is not the wording that the General Assembly used in 150B-51. So go, I just want to go back to Redmond for, um, for a moment. What is it about Redmond that is different? Number one, that there is a certifying statute, the, the procedure to certify the question, and number two, um, that, that we have supervisory power, that the powers are different than the Superior Court? Yes. Okay, and, and, and so, go ahead. And the third difference is that unlike in APA, which specifically preserves the review of questions that OAH cannot review, the ones that we recently discussed in 150B-40, three or 46, uh, it reserves, it, it specifically says that nothing in this uh, OAH uh, 
procedural you know, rules prevent a party to, from raising uh, the constitutional other remedies in other courts if those statutory schemes exist. And th that's where those remedies and challenges should be raised. So there is nothing like that in the Industrial Commission statutes. Industrial Commission statutes uh, in, in Redmond uh, did allow it to certify constitutional challenges to this court. It did certify constitutional challenges to this court and then court reviewed those challenges when properly before it. So uh, as, as I read um, the argument from, from your colleagues, you know, everyone agrees, I think, and I stand to be corrected, um, that this type of constitutional claim or claims could not be raised in OAH. Yes. But I think what your colleagues attempt to do is analogize these constitutional claims to, in, to an effect, a civil action in superior court um, that is effectively then joined, I guess, for, or consolidated with the administrative action and judicial review petition. Um, my, my, again, my recollection is that there are circumstances in judicial review where a trial court can in fact go beyond the administrative record or, or seek additions to the record that it needs to make a decision. Um, maybe, and I guess the question becomes, is it possible, is it permissible uh, to join, ha had they filed a separate declaratory judgment action by complaint, could that be consolidated or joined with a petition for judicial review in, in Superior Court? So I don't see why not. <laughs> uh, I don't see why not. I, if a complaint was filed, summons were issued, the court assumed its jurisdiction sitting as a general court of justice over a constitutional claim, the same court that sits in review of administrative claim and consolidates them, then the court then acts uh, as a court of general justice for constitutional questions and as an, as an administrative reviewer for administrative claims. The problem, if you try to bring it in the posture that it appears in this case, the court is strictly limited in what it could do as part of the PJR proceedings. One thing that it cannot do is to join any other parties. So uh, 150B-46, states that the parties on uh, a PJR are the same parties as where the parties below. If you are challenging a constitutionality of state law, Rule 19 requires joinder of legislative defendants. Well, you cannot do that. The only additional party that is allowed to come in through the doors of the PJR court is an aggrieved party, is a party that is aggrieved by the administrative decision at OAH that petitions the court to allow it to intervene. These legislative defendants here were not aggrieved. The law was not declared correctly as unconstitutional at OAH. So they didn't petition. And yet, when you're trying to challenge the constitutionality of uh, state laws, you have to bring them in. So it's limited that way. It's also limited at OAH, uh, at, at the PJR level, in that it cannot actually uh, consider additional new factual evidence. If the court determines that factual evidence, new factual evidence is required, the court is then required to remand this back to the OAH to make additional factual findings. 
And then those additional factual findings would allow OAH perhaps an opportunity to correct its decision, and then it would go back on a PJR again. But if the court decided that it wanted to make factual findings on constitutionality of a state statute, and as we all know, sometimes those trials last for weeks, uh, then it could not have done so. And so it would was have- there, Was there any, I mean, what, what kind of litigation ensued on these constitutional issues specifically? I mean, w was there uh, separate discovery, pretrial motions, uh, a, a trial on, I mean, assuming these were in fact uh, as applied challenges, sort of fact dependent then. They are fact dependent. Then was there, was there any, was there any fact finding by the trial court? Was there any, any trial on, on disputed facts or, or summary judgment filed in this case? No, Your Honor. And as your record would show, uh, the only things that did happen at the PGR level, there were two hearings, one on a motion to dismiss that the court heard without taking any additional evidence, and it couldn't have for the reasons we just talked about. And then there was a hearing on a motion for summary judgment where the evidence, the record that was accumulated at OAH level was reviewed by the PGR court. What, what facts do you need to find? If I'm just looking at the statute, and I got, you're asking me, tell me if this is constitutional or not, what other facts need to be found? We know when the, the, the person retired, we know when they were hired. What else do you need to know? What other facts need to be found to determine whether this statute is unconstitutional? So it's just, just a question of law. I, I think this case illustrates very well what facts need, and, and that goes to our last issue on appeal is that on the basis of this record evidence, the court erred in finding the fact, uh, the Cap Factor Act unconstitutional, but the facts that would need to be found under U.S. Trust, under Bailey, and under the, that line of cases, uh, as our Supreme Court recently stated in Lake, they're very fact intensive, actually. So you would have to first find facts that contractual obligation exists. In this case, that the contractual obligations term was substantially impaired, not just impaired, but substantially impaired. And you also have to find that that impairment was not supported by any legitimate public governmental purpose. So in this case, what we have before the court is actually uh, some evidence that was accumulated at, uh, at the OAH level that there was no contractual impairment at all. And um, that comes from the board's own uh, evidence. Uh, there was an affidavit submitted. It's a record page 66. The affidavit was prepared uh, by the superintendent of the Wilson County Board. And um, let me first show page 65 first. So uh, paragraph 11 of that affidavit states that in entering into employment contracts, the full board considered the salary schedule as set by the legislature, the employee's background and experience, uh, and equity among the employees. So nowhere there there is a mentioning that the retirement system benefits are considered in making of the contracts. But our evidence goes further, and the board presented additional evidence that shows that substantial impairment did not occur. And those are pages 70 and 71 of the record. And in page 71, and this is the superintendent of Wilson County Board of Education, paragraph 5, he states that at no, no time in my experience as a Board of Education member has the board based the salary of an employee on the anticipated receipt of certain retirement benefits. That's an affirmative showing 
that the retirement benefits played nothing in terms of determining what contracts the board would Is it enter. your position this is a facial challenge? Is it your position this is a facial challenge? Our position that um, this, the court findings and the court conclusions, while on the face of the court's order, they're limited, the use awards to this retirement apply to this board, but they go much beyond than just that single retirement. Because consider under the Kelly test what the board really asked the court to do here. The board argues that because it entered in contract with its employee before January 1st, 2015, because of that, the date of that contract was before, then this violates the contract clause of the Constitution because the employee's expectations were vested, the board expectations were vested at that time. This very fact demonstrates uh, the... So you were saying they were making a facial challenge. So it, I am saying that it, it very much is on that spectrum and closer to the... It's well, a spectrum and it's very much closer to the facial challenge. Well, if it's part, a facial challenge, wh why do you have to find any facts? Can't we just read the statute and determine whether or not the statute's unconstitutional? So, Your Honor, as an attorney who was involved with voter ID litigation, with, which was a facial challenge to the voter ID statute scheme, we had three weeks of trials on that issue, on whether that scheme violates the Constitution or not. So clearly evidence could be collected, but what's clear here is that if this stands, if this decision stands, then every employee who contracted with the state before January 1, 2015 would be affected. Because under the board's argument, that is the defining factor here. They entered into the contract before the effective date of the statute, and that in, infringes the Would the employee be affected or the county boards of education? Because as I understand, the employees don't have to pay anything. So you are exactly correct. They argue both. They argue that the contract clause violated here based on the both prongs. They say it's because their contract with the state is infringed by the CAP Factory Act, but they also say because their contract with the employee is infringed, and you are exactly correct, Judge Dillon, that this employee's retirement benefit is the same as it was before the CAP Factor Act, and the state will pay for it. But isn't it, isn't it an as-applied challenge to this group of employees just because there's a group that might be affected by the decision doesn't make it a facial challenge because there are a large number of employees or boards that wouldn't be affected by it. Doesn't it have to be that every, there, there's no set of circumstances that this would be constitutional? So you Isn't that the facial challenge? Th there is, no. I, okay. uh, our argument would be that uh, this rewrites the statute. The statute specifically includes a date right there on the face of the statute. It's not just effective date of the statute, but uh, section 135-5A3 states that for every uh, retirement service allowance, allowance uh, for members who retire after January 1st, 2015, the retirement system is to apply this cap benefit analysis only for highly compensated members, of course. So the words for every member who retires after January 1st, 2015 would have to be surplused with additional words you would have to add the language to the legislative language to say, and who did not contract with the state before January 2015. But another challenge also, so it requires rewriting of the statute and rewriting of the legislative intent, which is what makes it 
on that spectrum of as applied to facial challenges, and I will admit it's not an easy spectrum, and it's not very clear-cut test currently, but it, it meanders closer to the facial challenge than it so, is. Let me, I'm just going to cut you off for a minute. If we're talking about facial versus as applied, does it, does it actually matter in this case? Because under Redmond, Redmond seems to say if the action starts as a claim, for example, here in an administrative office, then it doesn't matter when you get to judicial review because the plain language of the statute says a complaint, and that's when it goes to a three-judge panel. So because this started as a claim, even if it went properly to the superior court, it still would not have to go to a three-judge panel, whether it was as applied or facial. And that's, that was Redmond, correct? That, that is Redmond, that's correct, right. that's what Redmond says, but Redmond only discusses this court's jurisdiction to hear issues on appeal. It does not at all discusses OAH's jurisdiction. Well, yeah, and I'm just, I'm sorry, assuming for mm -hmm. the discussion of that portion, let's say for assuming for argument that, that we determined that the Superior Court had jurisdiction, okay, to hear this because it was the first court of general jurisdiction, okay, if it's in the Superior Court properly, because it started out as a claim and not a complaint, does it not, not go to a three-judge panel? So I agree with you. Reading our court precedent, this is what uh, the case law states and the statute as well. It says civil complaint, yeah. civil action. But it's problematic <laughs> if the court oh, decides that's, that. Oh, that's not, that's, yes. And for multiple reasons um, that we discussed, given the fact how limited the court's jurisdiction on a PGR level to take evidence to add additional parties, to consider a facial challenge in its full bloom, <laughs> if you will. So it, it's problematic if that but it is. But it is what what our case law says and what the plain language of the statute says, correct? If this court determined that, that there the was PGR's jurisdiction. court jurisdiction is the same as this court's, yeah. which it is not. So if we had jurisdiction to, we, if the Superior Court had jurisdiction, then it would not send this to a three-judge panel, regardless of facial or as applied because it wasn't a complaint, it was a claim, correct? Yes, our position it should not be able to consider that, just to be clear uh, on that point. If this court determines that the Superior Court has jurisdiction to hear constitutional claims, including facial claims, then that's, that has to be right, but very, very problematic for the reasons that we discussed, and that's certainly not uh, a decision that we advocate for. But getting to um, the merits of this claim, I did show to the court a little bit why we should prevail if the court gets to uh, constitutional, to the findings of the court on an as-applied basis. One, the board's own evidence does show that uh, they did not rely on any retirement benefits when they made contract with their employee. But even more important than that, uh, local municipalities. Well, and to, to be clear, though, what we're talking about here is, is, is a record that was developed in the administrative proceedings. That's before, before what the agency OAH, that not a record that has been judicially established by by a court of the General Court of Justice. That's exactly correct because it couldn't because it didn't act as a General Court of Justice when it says on the PJR as 150B shows. But, but if we do get to this as applied challenges and the court decides to consider whether the CAP Factor Act was constitutional as applied, clearly the Superior Court's decision has to be reversed on that basis. 
Number one, uh, the Board of Education cannot make, um, cannot make claims under the contract clause against the state, its creator. Uh, Silver versus Halifax County reaffirms recent decision, uh, reaffirms once again that the local boards of education are creatures of the state, that the state could do with them, has plenary authority over them as the word that the court is using. Uh, the Fourth Circuit and the United States Supreme Court precedents, City of Trenton versus New Jersey and City of Charleston, both make that point very clear that the local municipalities do not have contract claims based on implied contract theories against the legislature. Uh, and the evidence that we did show you that there was no reliance expectation and therefore could not have been any substantial impairment um, is another thing to consider. And of course also uh, over the years uh, from 2018 through current time, the employers have paid varied rates to the retirement system every single year and it was always more. They were, so there couldn't have been expectation that the employer rate into teasers would remain the same. Our brief argues that point on page eight and nine. And for similar reasons, we would also submit to the court that the retroactivity argument should not be plausible. The, for the same reasons that the contract clause theory, local boards cannot make it, they cannot make retroactivity argument either. And I think that our argument on sound basic education and that there is no record evidence of any sort to show that uh, Wilson County's ability to provide sound basic education to each children was affected by this retirement transfer. Uh, our brief explains it, so I will rely on that and then on additional points that we will make. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, I'm Laura Crumpler. I am with the law firm of Pointer Sproul, and today I am here to represent Wilson County Board of Education. I do appreciate the court taking the time to hear these oral arguments today because we, we deem this to be a very important issue um, for the school board in Wilson County. Um, there are six issues total in this case, and um, unless the court has a preference for the order that I proceed, I'm going to just follow the order that's in the brief, um, actually in both briefs, and proceed down that way. At any time, if the court prefers that we change the order, please let me know. Um, the first issue that was raised in the brief um, by the retirement system is that the legislative defendants should not be parties in this case. I'm going to actually ask you to just jump ahead to the jurisdiction, because it seems like that's a little bit reliant upon that, that. Thank you. That, that is okay. that is very, very fine. And as we say in our brief and as we said to the Superior Court in Wilson County, we're not wed to the legislative defendants being in the case. Right. We're happy. Either way. Um, with regard to the jurisdiction, it does sound like the court has read the applicable uh, Court of Appeals and Supreme Court cases that we cited in our brief, um, including Redmond and Johnston versus Gaston County and Mastunado, Mastuno, uh, those cases which granted involve cases that ended up in the Court of Appeals and then one of them later in the Supreme Court. Um, but they all started out as administrative reviews. 
Um, and we believe that all three cases speak to a situation that is very, very analogous to this one. And that is the situation where an administrative tribunal cannot rule on constitutional issues. We've never contested that. When we raised these issues in the administrative um, Office of Administrative Hearings, we knew then that the ALJ could not rule on these. The ALJ, the Office of Administrative Hearing, is in the executive branch. It is our contention that once that case was over with, that it's not really an appeal that takes place to Superior Court. It's not called an appeal in 150B. It's called judicial review. But, but the legislature has given the judicial branch very specific, as a very specific role in the process of judicial review to re review executive or agency action. Isn't that true? That is correct. There are five or six grounds which the Superior Court has the authority to review the decision on. And one of those grounds is that the decision or the findings or the conclusions of the ALJ are in violation of constitutional provision. But not statute. Not the statute that the agency was operating under in making its decision. That is true. But we believe that because there has been a transfer of jurisdiction into the General Court of Justice, when it goes into Superior Court, it is entirely analogous to what happened in Redmond and those other cases. And in those cases, they say once there has been that the first destination in the General Court of Justice, I think one case does use Court of Appeals, but I think the other two refer to the General Court of Justice in which the Superior Court does reside. Because 150B-51 says that you can, you can ask the Superior Court if the decision, it says findings and inference conclusion, or decision is in violation of constitutional provision. And you're saying the decision to require Wilson County to pay this money violates the constitutional prohibition against That is correct. Because it is, whatever. it is whatever, as Whatever authority that, that they made their, they, they based that decision on, you're saying the decision violated the constitutional provision that. Right. Because as an, it is an as applied challenge. And we do challenge. have cases, I don't think anybody cited, they just, that I know our court has said a petition for judicial review is a civil action when considering whether to grant somebody attorney's fees on a, on a case. And so you do have that case all the, yeah, but go ahead. I, I yeah, and, and we it. also, um, Your Honor, maintain that this is in the interest of judicial economy also. As you're well aware, the federal courts allow pendant jurisdiction. Um, there's, there's no real reason why you can't tack on your constitutional claims in the Office of Administrative Hearings, being fully aware that the judge, the ALJ, cannot rule on those, and preserve them for later review in the General Court of Justice. But, but isn't that just the problem, is that you don't review anything that came up from the tribunal, the, the Administrative Office of the Hearing, but they didn't get to it, so there's nothing to review. So you have a, a question that hasn't been litigated that is decided upon in the first instance by the Superior Court with no record. A record, but not designed for this question. Well, if you were minding your <laughs> P's and Q's in the OAH, you would have made sufficient um, factual assertions that the Superior Court could then act on. Um, I, you know, it is our contention that it's not really just a review it becomes like a civil action once it transfers over to Superior Court. But the trial court here didn't make any independent findings of fact. Uh, you mean the Superior Court or the ALJ? The, the Superior Court. 
No, the Superior Court relied on what was in the record. There were several affidavits in the record. Uh, the retirement system, as well as Wilson County Board of Education, both asserted in the Office of Administrative Hearings that there were, were no disputed facts. So there were no facts to be found. But, but that's from an executive branch action, not a judicial branch action. Doesn't, doesn't a Superior Court have an independent duty irrespective of what happened and what facts were found. Um, I guess no facts were found here. But you know, generally speaking, ir irrespective of what the executive branch decides, doesn't the judicial branch have the, the, uh, the duty to find facts, particularly when we're talking about an as-applied challenge, which really is very fact-specific? I, I don't disagree, Your Honor. I don't think there were any facts to find in this case. I think it was which, clear. Which contract was impaired by the contract clause violation? Pardon, which, which, which contract? What contract was impaired by the, 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 the contract? The contract that was entered into in 2013. And where, where's that finding? That it's part of the affidavit that was submitted along with the motions in um, the uh, Office of Administrative Hearings. But the trial court made no finding as to what contract was being impaired. I, I don't think it was contested which contract was being impaired, Your Honor. So there, was no, there were no facts to be found. It was in the record. The parties both said, look at the facts. We're not contesting them. And with no contested facts, there was no need to find facts. At least that's our position, Your Honor. Um, and again, we believe that, that allowing these constitutional issues to be preserved along the route through OAH, and then if there's any remaining after the ALJ makes his or her decision, then they can be transferred into Superior Court and ruled on by the Superior Court at that point. I, I don't understand what contract you're saying. You're saying the contract between the, the employee and those county board was impaired because how is the state saying, county, you got to pay us money, impair that contract, any obligation you have that the county board, or are you saying it's the understanding between the county of what they would have to pay the state that was that was that was impaired because it was retroactive i'm trying to understand right right at the time that this contract was entered into this statute was i don't know if it was in the minds of the legislature but it certainly was not on paper and that it, contract's not impaired because the teacher's going to be paid or the employee's going to be paid right but we maintain that it takes two to contract the employee is just fine the employer in this case, Wilson County Board of Education, is not just fine. What they agreed to with this employee in 2013 has been impaired by this statute that was not effective until 2015. Because when they entered into this contract, what they agreed to was not what ultimately they got penalized into paying. And I think it's important to remember too how and, and you may know this, so forgive me if I'm being too pedantic. Um, the way that salaries work in North Carolina for educators is for the most part, they are funded by state funds. So are you saying the, the state can never increase the obligation of the county retroactively? We are not saying that. No, retroactively, yes, we are saying Well, that. they do that all the time. I'm looking at the session laws for the last six years and for instance, in 2021, they passed the budget in November and raised the percentage the county had to do to 16.38%, effective July 1, and even forecasted in, for 2022 it'd be 17.07%, but then 
the next year after July 122, haven't they raised that percent? So they raise the percent. They always raise the obligation of the county at what well, they, they routinely do. Are those are those session laws unconstitutional because they have retroactively raised the percentage that the county has to pay? Your Honor, we do not think those are retroactive. We think those are prospective only. Well, the, 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 the 2021 budget was passed in November 2021 and raised the percentage that the county had to pay for that year, and they made it effective July. July comes before November. That would be retroactive. So is that was that session law unconstitutional when they raised the percentage? That, that probably would be, it, under the analysis for retroactivity, the first thing you look at is whether or not the legislature intended for that particular act well, they did. To they be. said it's effective July 1, 2021, and they didn't pass it the, November. Then that may, that may be okay if the legislature intended for it to be retroactive. That may be okay. Um, what we're dealing with here, again, is a situation where when this school system sat down with this employee and agreed to hire this employee in a central office position in 2013, the we have it here too. Somebody sits down in July 2021 and you enter a contract not knowing your percentage is going to be raised right. until November. So I'm, that, I'm trying to understand why, how this is different. Uh, okay. Um, and, and that's one of the points that I was trying to get to. Are you, trying to say, are you this, saying this statute was not intended to be retroactive? Is that what you're right, saying? That's one, as I don't believe uh, this okay, statute was okay. intended to be retroactive. But secondly, is when you look at the expectations of the parties, the expectation, and this is where I was going in just a few minutes ago, the state of North Carolina funds, for the most part, everything that has to do with salary for its teachers and its administrators and other employees at the local level. That is one thing that the state of North Carolina is known for. So the school system receives allotments, and out of those allotments, they hire teachers and administrators. Those are state funds that come down to the local school board. And in those funds are included amounts to cover benefits. So that's all state funded. What we have here is a school board that has been entering into contracts for decades and never once had to worry about where the money was coming from because it comes from the state. And here we have a situation where they enter into a contract in 2013 and a year and a half later there's a law passed that says that the school board owes the retirement system, in this case over $400,000, that's going to have to come out of local funds. Well, I don't understand how that's different than the 2021. They entered a contract thinking our percentage is going to be 16 percent, and in November they raised it to seven. I mean, I know it may not, may not be as much money, but the state six months later says, oh, by the way, you're going to have to pay more into the fund from that salary, and you've already entered your contract relying on whatever the old percentage was. Right. And so maybe, I mean, are you saying that's, why wouldn't that be unconstitutional? I don't, I, first of all, I think the, the, the statute, in your case, the, the statute is clear that it's meant to be retroactive. Secondly, it does come out of state funds, so there's no surprise to the local school board. Can we go back to your judicial efficiency um, um, discussion for a moment? From what I understand, you say that it is more efficient to put all of these claims into an OAH claim, not litigate these constitutional issues because they're not allowed to be there, sort of do some kind of shadow litigation, making sure that you have ensured that your record is complete enough on issues that, that don't come before 
the administrative agency, such that then you get into the superior court and, and they're already there so that then you can then litigate them. How is that better or different than litigating what is supposed to be an OAH at that point and then bringing a declaratory judgment action in the superior court? You probably would end up staying the superior court declaratory judgment action while the AL, you know, ALJ one you know, proceeds because it's possible that the ALJ could make a finding, and it could have in this case, the, the ALJ could have made a finding that this was impermissibly retroactive without reaching the constitutional questions, um, because that is, that is a common law issue, um, not necessarily a constitutional issue. And in our, in our opinion, our position is, the ALJ in this case could have turned to the retirement system and said, you know, you have imposed um, a civil fine or penalty against this school board, and it has been applied retroactively um, in violation of law. So one of our principles is we don't reach, courts don't reach constitutional issues that they don't have to reach. Right. And here, the Superior Court, in conducting its judicial review, sort of runs through the litany, right? It says, you know, at the, the findings of fact or, or OAH you know, conducts a whole record review, says, oh, well, that's all arbitrary and capricious. It reviews uh, the legal questions and says, oh, well, that's, I conducted an over-review and that's all wrong too. Why not stop there without having to reach the constitutional questions and either send it back to OAH or reverse the OAH decision on the administrative claims that were clearly properly before the trial court. Yes, Your Honor, the, one of the big claims that we raised in OAH um, is very similar to what I believe you heard back in February from the Harnett County Board of Education, and that's that the, the rulemaking process in this case was flawed. Um, but at that point in time, there was no um, appellate court decision about that. Um, there was a superior court decision. I can't remember which judge now. Um, you know, it might have been Judge Collins, actually, had ruled in, I believe, Wake County Superior Court that the, there, was no, there were no flaws in that process. And so we preserved that for review, but even by the time we got to Superior Court, there had been no appellate ruling on that, and so we did not pursue that um, with the Superior Court. But, but the Superior Court made express rulings in its conclusions of law on the administrative piece, did it not? I believe that the Superior Court simply agreed that there were no disputes as to the facts and chose to look at three different issues, one of which we maintain is not constitutional, and that's the retroactive issue. Maybe I'm just misreading it, but let's see, before the, maybe it's just ta talking about the test that applied, but whether the whole record test to, for the claims and petition that the final decision, maybe it's just talking about the claims. Okay, well, all right, fair enough. And, and we definitely believe and agree with the Superior Court, and we contended below that this is an as I guess the question okay. stands, and forgive me, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling all over the place here, but um, <laughs> the question stands. Shouldn't the Superior Court have, have reviewed the administrative claims and the administrative issues first? before reaching the, the 
Your Honor, the only administrative issue I believe that was in front of the judge was of the procedures that were followed for the adoption of the rule. And there was no way that the Superior Court could overrule what had already happened in the other Superior Court. Um, and so the judge elected to go on and decide that as applied, um, you know, these, these actions of the retirement system in two instances violated the Constitution, and in the third instance was a violation of the um, prohibition against retroactive um, application of laws, um, which again we maintain is not constitutional, it's common law. What specific provision are you saying is unconstitutional as applied? Which part of that statute, 135, I'm just trying, tell me why, because I'm trying to understand if it says an applied I, challenge or it's, uh, it's, Excuse me, I'm sorry. That's all right, so um, which, yeah, which, which part of that statute are you saying? We believe that the fact that it factually applies to contracts that were entered into. What, what's the language in the statute? I don't. I can't point to any language in is the it, statute. Is it the one that says if you retire before? I, I'm just trying to remember. It applies to who? I'm just trying to remember what the statute. It, 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 to any any person who retires before January the first, 2015. Actually, it's anybody who's employed as of January the first, 2015, and and then retires after that. Uh, the statute. got to The county's got to kick in money. Right. And then, but if you get hired after January 1st or you vest after January 1st, 2015, then you, the employee, are responsible for that down the road. And, and it's made a huge difference in the approach that school boards take now because they're on notice about, you know, how to go about negotiating contracts and who needs to pay for what because they are on notice. The school system, Wilson County School Board, was not on notice in 2013 that all of this was going to come down in 2015. So if I was hired in 2014 and I retire in 2044, this statute would apply to me? That's correct. So you're saying it's as applied because you're saying it wouldn't be unconstitutional because certainly the school board is on much notice because they, this law would have been in effect for 25 years by the time that they decide to promote me to some Right, they're already on notice, Your so, Honor. So, so you're not saying you're saying it's unconstitutional here because this person already had their contract for which they were retired entered into before 2015. That's correct. But the law in general could apply to me that could be, have a contract entered into in 2041 before I retired. Right, if you make enough money. Now, yeah. see, this is the other thing. I mean, the the retirement system sort of suggested that this just you know applied across the board to everybody. It doesn't. You know, it's, there's there's a huge spectrum of school systems who are affected in different ways or not affected at all, depending on, you know, there's a whole host of local school board employees who don't make over $100,000 a year. And so this statute's never gonna touch those school boards about those employees. It's only those who-, who But they facially don't apply to those people. So I don't, by that argument, they don't facially apply to anybody that, that makes less than $100,000. I just, I think the, what you're really saying is if I get, if I do make more than $100,000 and I get, hired, get that contract in 2041, clearly that's not unconstitutional because- That's correct. Because there's nothing retroactive about that particular contract as long that's as I correct. was hired before. So you're saying it really just applies to anybody that was hired before 2015 where the contract was entered into before 2015 that the county was relying on the old law in entering that contract. It's, I, okay, that's, that's why you're saying it says applied. Okay, that's- um, the, the exact, issues that you brought before the Superior Court on judicial review, 
could those now at this moment be made part of a declaratory judgment action in the Superior Court? You mean the constitutional issues? Were, were, were we to determine that, that the Superior Court didn't have jurisdiction? Uh, I'd have to look at the statute of limitations. Okay. That's what it would depend on, the statute of limitations only. Yeah, that, that would be, I think, the, the, the thing that might bar us from bringing a declaratory judgment action at this point. Can, can I turn to the fines and forfeitures clause? Um, yes, you may, just briefly. <laughs> this is one of my favorite. Well, I, so here, here's my question. If, in fact, on the facts of this case, this well, I guess, A, how does, how just in this case is it a, is it a, a, a not a facial violation? That if, if there's a question about facial versus as applied, um, this probably comes the closest to maybe, you know, uh, straddling that line, uh, we would argue that this is also as applied because of the notice factor, um, the fact that moving forward, school boards don't have to dip into their local funds um, that's been set aside by Constitution to be used for nothing but education, not for paying back the retirement system. So it could be part, it, they could kind of plan for it and include it as part of the, the county board of education budgeting process and, and. And also just push it back on the employee. If they're entering into a contract now, they can say, look, you know, um, we're gonna give you this amount of money, but as part of the contract, you're gonna have to pay. So there are ways to deal with it. So that's why we would contend that it's still as applied. In fact, you will notice that the statute, when it was passed and made effective in 2015, it contains a provision in there where the retirement system has to give notice to employers. Um, I think it's every month or something, and in any way, and say, hey, you need to watch out this employee's on the line. They might be pension spikers. Hey, you better watch out. This one's on the line. It might be a pension spiking situation. So somehow the legislature even knew then that there was a need for these employers to know in advance. So when we're talking about the local funds, local funds are to go to the students. Is that what I understand? Or you, you at the, when the time the county makes the budget, they determine where the local funds go. My question, my question is going to what do you determine is for the education of the students and is a teacher's salary for the education of the student or is that a, a hard and fast dividing line? I believe that the teacher's salary is in fact for educational purposes and is consistent with Article 9, Section 7. In fact, local school boards often have locally paid teachers. Um, and if they have an employee, which may have even happened in this case, who rises above the state salary schedule, they might have to contribute some of their own money. All of that, we would contend, is consistent with this thing. What is not consistent with Article 9, Section 7 is having to write a check to the retirement system for their budgetary issues, their financial balancing of the books. It really has nothing to do with this teacher's salary or even this teacher's benefits. It has to do with paying back the retirement system. For Let me ask you a general question. Just, this is just has to do with political subdivisions. Assuming Article 9 doesn't apply, does this, could the state pass a law saying we require every city based, as long as it's not local law, to 
send the state X dollars to pay because we got a shortfall? Could, could they, I mean, could they effectively tax political subdivisions and tell them to send proceeds, to, you know, whatever money they got in their account to the state? Could they have the authority to do that generally? Because they, they're the ones that create the, the subdivisions. Could they do that? Uh, it's hard. It, most likely they could. But if you will, you know, take note of, we filed some additional authority in this case to address this very issue about And I'm not talking whether, about for, for proprietary type functions. I know there's some case law about that. But for right. governmental functions, not for the water plan or whatever. Right. And, and there are cases, in, in, in including the three that we, you know, submitted, Your Honor, that say that really the distinction has nothing to do with proprietary versus governmental. It really has to do with the individual facts of each case and whether or not, um, you know, imposing legislative will on the creation, whether it's a municipality or a corporation or whatever, whether or not that impacts a greater purpose of that municipality or that corporation. And I would urge the court to look at the UNC trustees versus Foy, which is a case from 1805. Right. in which it just the Supreme Court our Supreme Court I don't think the Court of Appeals existed in 1805. The Supreme Court, the Supreme Court didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever it was called yeah, in 1805 yeah. um, where they talk about the university and they, they basically say yeah you know the legislature has the right to mess with its creations but there's a limit to that and a lot depends on what the role and the purpose of the particular corporation or municipality is and how the legislative action impacts that role. And those three cases that we submitted also deal with that. Um, that it's not a hard and fast rule out there. And some of those, one of them at least is from the United States Supreme Court. One is a Fourth Circuit case. Um, and the other one is from South Dakota dealing with school boards. Um, so I have, oh, I still have some time. You left. do. So I have a question for your time. So um, if this case is properly in the Superior Court, just assuming for argument that it is, must the legislative defendants be there? Um, does it have to go to a three-judge panel or no? We would say pro we, definitely not a three-judge panel um, based on Redmond, which pretty, uh, to us anyway, is very clear that if, it's, if you're not filing a complaint or the answer to a complaint or amended complaint, the, the court in that case, in the Redmond case, and that was the Supreme Court of North Carolina, basically said they were going to read that uh, three-judge panel statute very literally. Um, and if there was no complaint, then there was no requirement for three-judge panel. The issue about whether or not to add the legislative defendants is a little bit less clear to us. Um, Rule 9, which is why we added them when we entered into the General Court of Justice, um, that Rule 19 says that anytime you are challenging the validity of a statute under the North Carolina Constitution or the federal Constitution or law, um, you have to include the Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate um, as parties in a civil action. Right. And so uh, we, we were not, when we decided to do it, we debated, is this a civil action once it goes to Superior Court or is it not a civil action? I, I have a question. How long is the employment contract for? Are they year to year or is it a five-year contract or how they normally work? Or maybe in your in this case, how long was the contract for? Um, probably four years, Your Honor. I believe the statutes are very, very clear about how long uh, administrative contracts. Well, then I go back to my point. 
because in, in the appellant's brief, it says over a five-year period, the state increased the percentage that the county had to pay from 10.78%, almost doubling it to almost 18%. And so if, if the county enters that five-year contract or four-year contract, can the, can the state increase the percentage during those four years for that contract? Why wouldn't that impair that contract? Your Honor, I think two. They could raise it to thirty. Could they raise it to thirty percent? Absolutely, I believe. Then the why state isn't that a retroactive? Because you've already entered this. It's going to certainly impair the heck out of what you got. Because you've entered that contract back in two thousand thirteen, and they double what you got to kick in for for that person's retirement. And you didn't know about it when you entered the contract. Why isn't that a retroactive? Well, you know, again, Your Honor, part of it is because that that money is all absorbed in the state funding system that we have. And those but it's something that the county is required to pay, or you're saying that money's coming to the county first? That that money's coming to the county, okay. and so there's no big shock okay. when that happens. So I think my time—I have 45 seconds. Does anybody have anything else? <laughs> Thank you very much for your patience. Thank you for your argument. We'll hear rebuttal. I would like to start with um, the nature of the lawsuit. Uh, if this decision stands as it's written, if this contention is maintained that the contracts that the board enters with their employees before 2015 are retroactive uh, if based on this act, then this statute would have to be rewritten. As it is written right now, it not only has an effective date, which all the statutes do, but it says very specifically that every service retirement allowance provided under this section for members who retire on or after January 1st, 2015 is subject to adjustment pursuant to the contribution benefit cap. So you would have to add the word who retire on or after January 2015 and who contracted with the state on or before January 1, 2015 and if you buy into the board educational argument, you would also have to add words to this statute and those employees who have also not contracted with local boards of education. Because according to the board, the transfer of money from the board's coffers into the state retirement system's coffers violate the constitution. So you would have to rewrite this statute, which is why this is so problematic. Uh, and I think Judge Dillon, you covered the slippery slope argument, and I think you went through the percentages we cited in our brief at page eight and nine, where the employer contribution has been going up every year so for many years now, and so what expectation does the board have? Is that, that money funded by the state, or is that funded by county taxes? Does it come, then the board of education, county board of education, where do they get their money from, from the so county? The Board of Education get funded, uh, get funded by both, and it, uh, they could supplement, for example, teachers' salaries by using local supplements, but the bulk of that comes from the state. Uh, the salary schedules are set by the state. So, uh, so, so it, you just get into a slippery slope. If this is right, then no other retroactive adjustment could be made by the legislature. Well, to answer my question ahead. about the applied, the applied, as applied challenge, I mean, this statute applies to people that are hired on December 31st, 2014 that would not enter any of these pension spiking contracts till the 2040s. I don't think that they're saying that it's unconstitutional for those. It's just for 
people who have their contracts entered into. So, with, with the exception that the statute on its face has a very specific requirement that this cap factor is to be applied not to people who were hired on December of 2014, but to every retirement on or after January 1st, 2015. That they're not saying it's unconstitutional because now the counties know about it. So they will know that this factor will be applied if they want to enter a contract with me in 2040. So they'll know about it. So they're saying it's more the surprise that they'd enter this contract before 2015. But, but that's a very similar argument too. They don't know about the fact that employer contribution for that particular year is going to be raised. I think you gave an example in the state budget. They don't know that either. And if this is right, then that is impermissibly retroactive. And that just cannot be. And uh, another point that uh, I wanted to make is um, is that uh, the board has argued uh, during its argument that this cap factor is not in any way related to this employee, and that is just not correct. The statute spells out a very complex formula of how the cap factor is calculated, not cap factor, but uh, the cap itself is calculated and applied. Uh, the four steps are spelled out here. We don't need to go through them, but it's very specific to the salary the board paid to its employee. It's not that the money goes and funds everything else in the world. It is specific to the spike in the salary that this employee received in the last four years before this employee retired with the board. So it's not any extraneous uh, application to anybody else. It's specific to that specific contract. And as we discussed earlier, this contract could not have been violated based on the retroactivity of contract clause um, uh, considerations because I showed you the affidavits there in the record that state that the board does not consider these, uh, any type of retirement considerations when it makes contracts with, these, um, with their own employees. It just doesn't, and it's affirmative in this record. So we would ask the court to reverse uh, uh, the Superior Court's decision, uh, make clear that the Superior Courts understand the scope of their authority on, uh, when they sit in their petition for judicial review capacity, and uh, reinstate uh, the ruling in favor of uh, the retirement system. Thank, Thank you. you for your argument. We will take it under advisement.